Hello, greetings, thank you for your interest in spiritual matters, and thanks for joining us today. I'm Ethan, I work at the Venice Church of Christ, we're disciples making disciples on the west side of Los Angeles. It is written in John chapter 7, beginning in verse 45, The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. What the officers who had been sent to arrest Jesus confessed is true and a compelling witness at the time for something that would be recognized for the ages ever since, that no one ever spoke like Jesus did. Even those who do not profess Jesus as Lord recognize that he was a great teacher. Now, if we profess to be followers of Jesus, we need to recognize that he is our master, our rabbi and our teacher, as he suggested in Matthew 10, 24 and 25, in Matthew 11, 29, Mark 9, 5 and 11, 21. There's so much that Christians can learn from Jesus and the instructions that he gave. We can learn ethics and morality, as we can see in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. We can learn about the kingdom in the parables, for instance, in Matthew 13. We learn about apocalyptic expectations surrounding the destruction of Jerusalem and then the end of the age in Matthew 24 and 25. And these are always good and profitable for consideration. We've discussed them many times before, and no doubt, Lord willing, we'll have opportunity to discuss them again in the future. Yet we also can learn a lot, not just from what Jesus actually taught, but how and why Jesus taught in the way that he did. And so today, let's consider from Scripture how Jesus confronted his opponents. Who are the opponents that Jesus encountered? What motivated them to have that opposition? How did he respond to those challenges? And how did he challenge them? And what can we learn and apply as we confront those who may be in opposition to the gospel of Jesus Christ? So who are these opponents of Jesus? We start thinking about opponents of Jesus. Uh, the first people who come to mind are the ones we seem to see him always interacting with, and that's the Pharisees. Pharisee comes from the Hebrew parishah, means set apart or separated ones. Josephus, in the Antiquities of the Jews, chapter 18, describes the Pharisees as one of the major sects of the late Second Temple Judaism period. They seem to emerge in the days of the Maccabees, about 150 years before Jesus was born, and they would continue after the destruction of the temple to become the rabbis, and they constructed modern Judaism as we know it. They're famous then and now for upholding what they call, consider the written law, which we can find in scriptures, and the oral law, uh, what they believe to be the uh, a set of traditions handed down from Moses all the way to their time uh, regarding how that law was to be performed. So we're going to see there's an emphasis among the Pharisees on tradition and the disputes among rabbis. They're a more numerous group than the Sadducees or Essenes, the other two major sects of the Second Temple Judaist period, and they lived among the people. But there's still only a few thousand of them. They consider themselves more holy than the people. As we can see in John 9 of the passage, it seems like the people kind of generally conceded as much. Of course, that would become a major difficulty for them. 
And this is something that's probably very difficult to see when we read the Gospels. Uh, th that the Pharisees, though, are actually the closest of all the various sects and opponents, the closest to uh, doctrinally to uh, where Jesus is. They believed in the Torah and the prophets. They believed in the resurrection and angels and all things like that. In Acts 23 and verse 8, when Paul uh, sees that the Sanhedrin, the, the council, is made up of Pharisees and Sadducees, he cries out that he is a Pharisee of Pharisees. He's on trial for the resurrection of the dead, and it led to a, a great dispute because the Pharisees accept those things the Sadducees did not. And they believed that there was a Messiah who was going to come. So those are the Pharisees. Then there's also, like I said, the Sadducees, another one of those major groups. Uh, it's from the Hebrew word for Zedekites. Uh, Zedek was the priest, a high priest in the time of David in 2 Samuel 20, 25. And the Zedekites that followed would become the Sadducees. And they concluded the priests and all those concentrated around the temple. They did not accept the legitimacy of the prophets as inspired instruction. They centered their instruction on the Torah. They denied the existence of spirits, the resurrection, and things of that nature. Again, from Acts 23 and verse 8. The Sadducees were very few in number, but had disproportional representation in power and influence because they were the priests in the temple. And so everybody who came to the temple to offer sacrifices, to uh, pay their taxes and things of that nature, uh, were paying into the power of the Sadducees. The Sadducees were constantly out to the Pharisees. Now, there are, it's true that there's some Sadducees who proved to be very prominent Hellenizers, uh, very much influenced by uh, Greek ways of doing things, wanting to bring in Greek practices uh, wholesale into Judaism. But it would be a caricature to suggest that all of them were that way. And we do have stories of ancient times of priests and others among the Sadducees who true, did try to remain faithful to their calling. But it is important to note that the Sadducees did well under what the status quo was at that time. As long as the temple was there, things were great for the Sadducees. Even if they weren't great for the people, for the Pharisees, or anybody else, the Sadducees profited immensely. And therefore, they didn't really want anything to change. And so, you can imagine, they weren't very enthusiastic about the idea of a coming king who would upset the status quo. Now, when this temple was destroyed in the year 70, the Sadducees lost their power base and their reason for existence. And the sect died out very soon after uh, and is no more. The chief priests, we can find them in John 11:47. Many of the passages are a subset of the Sadducees, since they are part of the priesthood. The upper crust, the primary uh, leaders there among the priests in Jerusalem. We also hear of opposition in the Gospels from uh, people called lawyers and scribes. Lawyers in Israel are not adjudicating cases. They're not the kind of guy going up and, 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 and arguing a case before a judge. Uh, but they're experts in the law, and, and they help interpret it for those who would need assistance. And the people esteem them highly for that in Luke 11, 45, 46, and 52. Uh, Jesus will chastise them uh, for, for, for their pretense in that way. The scribes in Israel are those who are able to write. A scribe is a writer. And if you can write, you can also read. And if you can read and write, you can exposit on the law and uh, are seen as kind of holy men. In Matthew 7, 29, the people are amazed at Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount because he taught them as one having authority, not as their scribes. So we can learn from the scribes there that the scribes would teach the people, but do so in the name of the previous prophets, uh, Moses, etc., and in the later periods, such instruction would go in the name of various rabbis. Now, both lawyers and scribes are often mentioned among the Pharisees. So it's very likely that some of the lawyers and scribes were Pharisees, and others uh, 
may not have been explicit members of that sect, but would have been associated with them in standing. And we can see that throughout the Gospels. Matthew 5, 20, 23, all the woe to you, lawyers and Pharisees, Pharisees, hypocrites, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, uh, so on and so forth. And interestingly, also, the scribes are associated with the chief priests at times in Matthew 2, 4, 16, 21, 2018. And especially in Mark's Gospel, uh, the scribes are seen as a main source of opposition, uh, especially toward the end. Uh, It's very interesting to see that. There's also the elders. The elders are older men with standing, and they maintain power and influence on a community level. Um, in the church today, there's supposed to be elders shepherding a f- uh, each individual local congregation, 1 Timothy 3 and Philippians 1. Uh, back in the older days, you can see in Ruth, for instance, you have elders who kind of sit at the, the gate of the city and help adjudicate things and, and to do, do whatever the city needs to do on a local level. And so there are elders in Israel still in the second temple period here, and they are associated with the chief priests in Jerusalem in Matthew 21, 23 and other passages like that. Uh, elders also can be chief priests and scribes, and they're associated with the Sanhedrin, Luke 22:66. Another group that we see is uh, Herod, Herodians. Uh, those are guys who are like Herod, Matthew 20:16, etc. Uh, probably not the largest group. Now, those are really the groups of opposition in the Gospels. Uh, John will sometimes speak of the Jews as kind of a collective whole, and the Jews as a collective whole might be, you know, st- giving it the 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 greatest expanded definition, a large number of Jews as influenced by the religious authorities, the chief priests, the Pharisees, etc. Uh, but uh, it may not be wise to consider the Jews to be all the time, everywhere, to be all the Jewish people. It doesn't seem like that's what what's in mind. Uh, there's these Jews who are in opposition, mostly of these groups that we've already mentioned. Now, the big question is, why are all these guys opposing Jesus? There's difficulty answering that. They don't. We don't exactly get any uh, psychological analysis. Uh, we're not told explicitly all the time. Uh, there is one uh, passage that does help explain their opposition in, in John 11:47 and 48. After Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, uh, a lot of them get together. The uh, Pharisees gather the council, and the chief priests do as well. So all these different groups who are otherwise opposed to each other, they say, what are we to do for this man performs many signs? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. They're all afraid for various reasons that uh, this will instigate uh, the Romans to to, uh, cause difficulties for the people. Yes, we can see, ironically, this is going to lead to this ultimately happening because of how they uh, do not turn to Jesus, but turn against him. This is going to lead uh, the very thing they're afraid of to come true 40 years later, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, The point is that they're motivated by fear of loss from the uh, Roman power. They're also afraid of loss of standing. Uh, he represents a threat to their power and the status quo. The, if they follow after Jesus, they're not going to give the Pharisees and the lawyers and the scribes and the Sadducees uh, the kind of uh, credit and standing that they're used to. Uh, that's going to cause a, a, a lot of justification for opposition. They understood the Messiah and Israel and God's purpose in the world very differently than Jesus was explaining. We can see this in their interactions in John 5 and John 7. The Pharisees are very dependent upon the traditions. The Sadducees are dependent on the temple. And Jesus chastises them for their uh, over-dependence and, and, and their going astray because of their traditions or because of uh, what was going on in the temple in Matthew 15, 21, and other places. 
But even beyond that, it was something prophesied. Uh, when Mary cries out in what's called the Magnificat, her great uh, psalm in, in Luke 1, uh, that Jesus was going to elevate the lowly and bring down the mighty. It was a major theme in that, that the poor would be satisfied and the rich would go away hungry. Uh, in Luke chapter 2, verses 34 and 35, um, when Jesus is being brought to the temple, and... Um, Simeon, who was prophesied he would see the Lord's Christ, uh, is able to hold him and see him. Uh, he, he makes this prophesying in the Holy Spirit, uh, saying that he was going to be the cause of rising and falling for many in Israel. And in the Psalms, in Psalm 118 and Isaiah 28, uh, Jesus was the cornerstone on which many was going to stumble. And that's exactly what happened in Israel. So there's all kinds of reasons for opposition. And we need to be careful because it's very easy to turn them into caricatures because it's very easy to do that. We just reduce them to these kind of men foaming at the mouth trying to get a, get on Jesus. And it seems like the text will justify that to a degree. For instance, again, the Pharisees are presented in a almost uniquely, consistently negative light. Uh, again, you walk away from the Gospels, you would not think necessarily that Jesus and the Pharisees are that close doctrinally. I think it also represents a profound truth. A lot of times, uh, the people who have the strongest arguments with each other, and it seems to be the most vitriolic and acerbic, are actually those who share a lot of ideas in common, uh, less so those who have a lot of disagreements. And there is opposition. There's even conspiracy. As we're going to see many times, the Pharisees, Sadducees, Herodians will get together. That's ridiculous to think about that in any other context. They're ganging up purely because of their opposition to Jesus. So Jesus is a unifier in many ways, unifying everybody in opposition to him. But yet, in, in Luke 7, Jesus is invited to dinner by Simon the Pharisee, and Jesus goes and eats with him, and, and, in, and provides him instruction in a way that is critical, but not uh, in, in a con condemnatory way, like, for instance, in Matthew 23. Nicodemus will visit him at night in John chapter 3, and Nicodemus uh, could see something in him. Uh, and, and not only that, it's not like they're uniquely opposed to Jesus. Uh, they're more than happy to align with him when he was arguing against their opponents. So in Mark 12 and Luke 20, sitting so Jesus is going after the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribes. I think he answers them well. And you can be sure that uh, no Pharisee would uh, would just say, well, you know, that, that argument Jesus used is Jesus, so we can't use it. Oh, I'm sure that the next time some Sadducee tried to use that ridiculous situation against them, they're more than happy to pull out Jesus' answer. Inappropriate for themselves, because... Again, it's it's not solitary opposition to Jesus. Uh, they're opposed to Jesus because Jesus threatens them in a very compelling and significant way. And they're willing to work with others against him, but they're also willing to work with him against their enemies that they share. So the demons do oppose Jesus, that's true, but Jesus' human enemies are not demons. They're people who live in their context, and they have their ways of looking at the world. They saw that Jesus in his teaching threatened that perspective. They did not change their ways to follow him, and so, naturally, they opposed him. And that's something that we see to this day with a lot of people. Uh, they, they just look at things and, and believe in things that are just going to be opposed to the ways of Jesus, and so there's going to be opposition. But it's also something that a lot of times very religious people can do. Even people who would profess to follow Jesus uh, end up going against him in the things that he taught. Because something that Jesus is teaching actually threatens their standing, threatens uh, the stability uh, forces them to do something that is uncomfortable. Um, and, and so something to certainly keep in mind. 
these are people, and they're doing things as people do. So having said all that, those are his opponents. So, so how did he interact with them? How did he uh, respond to their challenges? How did he challenge them? The one way that we would expect, and we do see sometimes, is both scriptural explanation and refutation. There are some times where Jesus will explain scripture when he engages with his opponents. A very compelling one is found in Matthew 19, and there's parallels in Mark 10. And this is when the Pharisees come with him regarding uh, divorce. They will they come, they're, they're not gumming in good faith in verse uh, 3 of Matthew 19. They're testing him. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now what Jesus is going to do is he's going to say, Have you not read that he who created them male and female? From the beginning, he made them male and female and said, Therefore man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What God has joined together, let not man separate. So here what Jesus is doing is he's saying, Okay, have you not read in Scripture? And he goes back to Genesis 1, and then he goes to Genesis 2, and then he draws a conclusion. What man, what God has joined, man has not separate, they are no longer two but one flesh. So it's an explanation of these scriptures. The Pharisees come back with, well, what about Deuteronomy 24.1, where Moses said that man could give a certificate of divorce and send her away. And Jesus says, for the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it has not been so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual morality, a pornea, sexual even behavior, uh, marries another, commits adultery. Now, you might be wondering, why is it that the Pharisees don't run with this and tell everybody, look, Jesus challenged what Moses said. Well, interestingly, in the background, uh, we have a record in what's called the Mishnah and the Talmud. And the Mishnah is a, a rabbinic document, so it comes about 150 years after Jesus is born. And it is commentary on the, the Torah, the uh, the books of the Bible, uh, Old Testament, Genesis, Leviticus, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And the Talmud comes later, and there's Babylonian and, and Palestinian versions, and those are commentaries on the Mishnah. And in these, we see the discussions of the rabbis. Uh, and, and they preserve a lot of the discussions that were going on when the rabbis were still the Pharisees. And, and, and one of the constant contrasts are the school of Shammai and the school of Hillel. And what's interesting is, is that sh uh, when it comes to the divorce issue, uh, Shammai was very dogmatic. And normally Shammai is very hardline. And here it was only for sexual... Uh, for, for sexual morality, for adultery, things like that. That's the unclean thing. Uh, for Hillel and his group, uh, tends to be a little bit uh, less stringent, and, and the the direction you're kind of supposed to go to in those documents, they they liked Hillel more than Shammai. Hillel says uh, even you know, even a small thing is enough to to divorce your wife. And so this is an internal argument among the Pharisees at this time. But what's interesting is Jesus doesn't just say, well, you know, I'm with Shammai, not with Hillel. And interestingly, he's with both Shammai and Hillel, because he says Hillel has the correct argument vis-a-vis -vis Deuteronomy 24.1. But Shammai's school has discerned God's intention from the beginning. And so he agrees with both and disagrees with both. But most importantly, he doesn't go there. That's interpreting it through the lens of the school of Hillel, school of Shammai. He doesn't do that. He doesn't answer the question based upon Pharisaic authorities. Instead, he goes back to the ultimate authority, who is God. He's not teaching in the name of Rabbi Shammai or Rabbi Hillel. He's teaching in the name of God based upon what is revealed in Scripture and explaining the Scriptures.
Another example of scriptural explanation is in Matthew 22, 35 and 40. He's challenged by a lawyer about what the greatest command is. And Jesus in that passage will say, you know, you shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, from Deuteronomy 6, 5, and uh, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, Leviticus 19, 18, on this depend the law and the prophets. Interestingly, in Luke's version, Luke chapter 10, a lawyer is asking the same question, but Jesus uses a different tactic we're going to see. He doesn't actually give the answer. He says, how do you understand the law? And the lawyer there will respond to the same passages. And then uh, will ask who his neighbor is, and Jesus will then take that opportunity to uh, give the parable of the Good Samaritan, which is a story designed to skewer him because the Samaritan is the nasty guy. But in the end of that story, who proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Interesting way of asking the question is, it wasn't who did the Samaritan treat his neighbor? Who, you know, who proved to be the neighbor? It was a, He couldn't even say Samaritan. He says, the one who showed him mercy, uh, which is a very telling answer. Uh, in a different context, in Mark 12, and it's a little bit less polemic, uh, the scribes are the ones who asked Jesus this question. And when Jesus answers, a scribe will continue to expound upon it and, and how he has spoken rightly. And the scribe is told that he is not far from the kingdom of God, which again goes back to a point is difficult to caricature. Jesus doesn't demonize them. He points out what is commendable even among those who are opposing him. In John 10, 31-38, uh, his opponents are trying to stone him because he said, I and the Father are one. And he points out, in your own law, going back to Psalm 82, 6, it does not say, uh, ye are gods. Which is kind of an uncomfortable passage for us. But what Jesus is doing with it is trying to point out, if in the law, in the, in the scriptures, the idea could be introduced that humans could have some spark of divinity, someone could, why is it so crazy that I, am, I say I'm the Son of God? And so there's scripture explanation and kind of using scriptures to explain things and various things. There's also, of course, scripture refutation, where he will refute them uh, the way that he refuted Satan in Matthew 4 and Luke 4 and other passages, where, you know, it is written, you shall not worship uh, Yahweh your God and serve him only. You, it, shall, you sh it is written, man does not live by bread alone, you know, all those things. Of course, the big one is in Matthew 22. 22-23, uh, uh, where the Sadducees have their their one ridiculous circumstance called argumentum ad absurdum. Uh, okay, there's this uh, woman. She's been married to seven brothers in turn. They all had her. They didn't have any of them. Didn't have children. Uh, they all die. Whose is she? Whose wife is she in the resurrection? And they're so proud of themselves. They think they got him cornered. And Jesus just straight up says, "You are wrong." Because you do not know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So he just completely undercuts the entire argument uh, at its knees by denying even the presumption that things are going to continue. The Sadducees have assumed, as many might assume, that things that happened in the resurrection will be just like they are in this life. And he's saying, oh, no, there's that very important difference. And so that argument is entirely destroyed. He doesn't stop there, though. He goes on and says, As for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And what's so interesting about this is that, yes, it's an inference. There's nothing explicit there. Jesus is pulling out the fact that God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That means he is the God of the living. But also... That he's quoting from Exodus chapter 3. He's not quoting uh, Daniel 12, which is the strongest statement of resurrection. Not going to Hosea 6, where it's kind of there in prophecy. No, he goes to Exodus, because that is what the Sadducees accept. 
he goes to their own ground and shows how they are wrong from what they themselves read. Because they affirm the Torah. Later on in the passage, verses 41 through 46, Jesus uh, has these Pharisees gathered. He asks them. He challenges them with, with an answer about Scripture. He says, Who's, who do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Well, he's the son of David, right? So how can David, in the Spirit, call him Lord, saying, Yahweh said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet? From Psalm 110 and verse 1. This is one of those things where the Pharisees can't answer him. And we can understand the nuance that he's the son of David, but he's, of course, greater than David. Uh, that's something that the Pharisees didn't either want to connect or didn't want to deal with or could not understand. And there's also in John 8, 12 through 18, that Jesus will re refute the Pharisaic claim that he's witnessing about himself, therefore it's when it's not true. He points out that the Father and he are both witnesses based on Deuteronomy 19:15. So, yes, Jesus does explain Scripture. He does refute with Scripture, as we would expect. But he doesn't do it as often as we might expect. Nor he uses other means normally, uh, in various circumstances. And one of the big ones he uses is questions. He would ask questions of those who would challenge him. Uh, right after the, he makes his triumphal entry and cleanses the temple... And uh, the great challenge of the Sadducees we're going to discuss later. Uh, his authority is challenged by the chief priests and elders in verse 23 of Matthew 21. They're asking, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? As uh, Christians who seek to glorify God according to all things he's revealed, that's, we know that the question is a valid question, that we should know by what authority uh, we are doing the things that we uh, we, we would be doing that make sure all things are done in the name of Jesus. But they're not asking in faith. They're asking to challenge. They're asking to deny. They're asking to cause embarrassment. So Jesus just asks them a question. And he's, he's very blunt about it. I'll ask you a question. You answer me. I'll answer you. Uh, the baptism of John. From where did it come? From heaven or from man? And so now it puts them in a pickle. And they even know they're in a pickle. Because they say from heaven, they'll ask, well, why didn't you believe in him? If he's from man, well, the people. The people think he's a prophet. And so they're going to jump on him. And uh, they're going to be even bigger difficulty. And so they take the weasel way out. We don't know where it came from. And so therefore Jesus said, and therefore I will not tell you by what authority I do these things. And so he both humiliates them, gives them no ground upon which to accuse them, and makes them look bad in the sight of the people. And so he has accomplished three objectives in this way, all the things that they were trying to do against him. And there are many other times that we have, can see. Uh, we already saw one yeah, where you know, the lawyer in Luke 10, he asked him what he thought. And a lot of times you'll notice that, that Jesus will answer questions with a question. A lot of times there's also uh, embarrassing examples uh, that Jesus will use. He's gonna, a lot of challenges that come up uh, based on a biblical argument or an argument from tradition. He's going to use a technical parallel difficulty to try to get his opponents to look at things perhaps a bit differently. One of the ones that uh, seems very interesting to us is in Mark chapter 2. In Mark chapter 2, the, the going through the grain fields and his disciples are plucking heads of grain. This was recognized, in a sense, as harvesting, and therefore work on the Sabbath. And so the Pharisees asked, well, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And they're making this accusation. What's interesting is Jesus says, never says they're doing something that's completely within the bounds of the law. 
He never actually comes around and says that. Instead, he says, have you not read what David did when he and his men were hungry, and he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the name of time of Abiathar the priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. Going back to uh, 1 Samuel 21. Now, this is an embarrassing example because it's not one of the greatest moments in David's life. He's on the run from Saul. Uh, he has nothing. And so he and a few of his men uh, happen to come upon uh, where the... Um, the, the high priest, uh, the priests are, and the tabernacle, and uh, he he actually lies. Says I'm on a mission from Saul. Of course, Saul is not giving him a mission, and uh, he he needs supplies. Uh, is there any food? The only food they have is the bread of the presence, which of course, as as non Levites, they're not supposed to eat. But it's a known emergency, and so the priest says, Himelech, who is Abiathar's father, uh, they can eat it as long as they have kept themselves from women. And, of course, they had, so they ate the bread of the presence. And that's also when David gets Goliath's sword as well. Because of this, an accusation will be made against Ahimelech and the priests. And Ahimelech and the priests will be killed by Saul on that pretense. And so it's a very interesting example, because nobody here looks good. And, and it is a technical violation of the law. What Jesus is doing with this, pointing out, though, in this time of extremity, uh, God allowed something and did not punish them. And then, of course, he delivers the final blow. The Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Because uh, Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And so Jesus is going back to the original instruction saying, your, your categories are too restrictive. They're, they're hungry. They need to eat. And so doing this is not wrong because of the of, of the emergency of the nature situation. Now, is it true that this gets abused to justify all kinds of things that uh, uh, aren't emergency situations and uh, should probably not be our, justified in this way? Oh, absolutely. People rest and distort and abuse scripture all the time, but we need to recognize for what it is. Jesus is challenging them on the basis of the fact that they have these rigid categories and he's saying, wait a second, uh, it's not that rigid with God in certain situations. And it's very embarrassing to everybody involved. But Jesus goes there, even if we uh, may not want to go there. He also um, would argue, root his argument in Scripture. Matthew 15, the great example of this. Uh, the Pharisees see that Jesus' disciples are eating with one unwashed hands. Why do you break the traditions of the elders? Uh, for they aren't washing their hands when they eat. And Jesus never, you know tells them, you know, that this tradition is absolutely awful, or that they shouldn't have to wash their hands. It says nothing about that. I'm sure many times Jesus washes his hands before he eats, and in fact, that's good hygiene to wash your hands before you eat. What instead Jesus does is he, he, he just questions the whole category. Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? God command, honor your father and mother, which is, of course, the fifth commandment in, in Exodus chapter 20. And they say that whoever... Uh, tells his father and mother, what you would give to me is given to God, or Corbin, he need to honor his father. And so he says, for the sake of your tradition, you made void the word of God. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. So he chastises the entire concept of, of using traditions in this way. Uh, by pointing out, look, you're, you're undermining traditions. You're trying to say, well, God is greater than parents, therefore if we dedicate things to God, we don't have to give to parents. When God commanded you to take care of your parents, and by the way, that's what honor your father means. It means mother, mother. It does not necessarily mean it concludes that you should listen to them and not say uh, disrespectful things to them, but the point is that you take care of them in their time of need. 
but he's pointing out how they had erred greatly in their assessment of which commands are over other commands and the dangers and difficulties that go into that kind of traditionalism. And we can see the same type of critiques in Matthew 5, 33-37, Matthew 23-16-22, and in other places. A lot of times Jews will also use logical reasoning. He's just going to consider things they say and kind of point out the difficulties in the reasoning. In Matthew 12, for instance, Jesus um, goes and there's a guy with a withered hand there. And and he asks them, because they want to accuse him, if any, which of you have a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. He just, you know, it takes their situation, just kind of reasons it out with a parallel example. And then saying, well, it's much greater to, to take care of a man. And in fact, in the Talmud, you have all kinds of circumstances enumerated upon which you can, uh, what things you can do on the Sabbath in the name of an emergency. And right after that, in verse 22, a demon-possessed man is brought. He casts out the demon. So the Pharisees try to refute this. Casting out demons by Beelzebub, prince of the demons. And he knows this. And so he says, wait a second. House, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if I, it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, and the kingdom of God has come upon you. And so he just refutes them with their own law. Wait a second, wait. Why would Satan cast out Satan? That makes no sense. It's illogical. And the end of it, and also then it goes parallel. If there are other Jews who cast out demons, well, if, if I'm doing it by Beelzebub, well, then it means your own people are, are your own sons even, are led astray by Beelzebub. But of course, they're trying to escape the conclusion. But if by the Spirit of God I'm casting out demons, then the kingdom of God has come. And of course, that's what the Pharisees do not want to consider, because Jesus' vision of the kingdom is not their vision of the kingdom. And again, Luke 13 uses illustration of ox and sheep. Uh, it's very similar to Matthew chapter 12, Matthew 14 about the Sabbath and healing. But he also incorporates this idea uh, in Luke 13, very important there, that uh, Sabbath as deliverance from bondage, which is there in Deuteronomy chapter 5. In the recapitulation there, Deuteronomy 5, 12 through 15, the idea that God has relieved Israel of its burdens and, and, and of slavery and things like that, have redeemed them from bondage. And so to heal a person on the Sabbath is to redeem them from the bondage from Satan. In John chapter 5, 18 47, when he has talked about how he is God. He explains to the people uh, authority and witness and goes through logically the nature of authority and witness when uh, his opponents bristle at what he is saying. So this happens a lot with logical reasoning. And of course, as we've seen in many of these passages already in Luke 10, also here in Matthew 12, uh, where he then will talk about binding strong men, you have examples or parables given. And so he would tell a parable or give an example to expose the fallacies of his opponents or provide a compelling way of looking at the situation. Matthew 9, there's a great example of this where he's eating with tax collectors and sinners and the Pharisees think this is just the worst thing ever. And Jesus uh, then says, you know, uh, who, who, the, those who are ill I need a physician, not those who are healthy. Uh, but go and... Just learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. He quotes Hosea 6.6 6, as if they have not understood it. 
In Luke 5, Pharisees will question him about eating and drinking. And he talks about uh, the bridegroom. As long as the bridegroom is with the disciples, they're going to eat and drink. When the bridegroom is gone, they will fast and will continue on with the idea of you don't put an old cloth on new garment. You don't put new wine in old wineskins. Again, using illustrations to try to explain. In Luke 7... Uh, we talked about uh, Jesus ate with Simon, the Pharisee. Uh, at that time, a sinner woman came and washed his feet in and, and, and repentance and tears. And Simon thought if he knew what kind of woman that was, he wouldn't let her do that. And he just asked him, Simon, uh, if one guy owes a little bit and another guy owes a lot and both are forgiven, who is going to be more thankful? The one who was forgiven a lot. And uh, he then explained what the woman was doing compared to the more coldness that he got from Simon. And so even though her sins are many, uh, they're forgiven. And yours are not. Interestingly, look at Luke 15 through 16. Uh, there's a whole set of parables there that uh, we talk about very often. And we mine them for understanding. It's the parable of the lost sheep. It's the parable of the lost coin. The parable of the prodigal son and the older brother. And then the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. All of those are in a polemic context. He's actually saying all of them to or in light of the Pharisees. The idea that, you know, the Pharisees are shutting up the kingdom. And so he's pointing out the ridiculousness of of, of where they are. The Pharisees are really the older brother. Uh, But God is gracious to the son who came back. Uh, The one who uh, finds a coin is jubilant, even though she has nine other ones, jubilant over the coin that she lost. And, of course, they're covetous. And so the whole rich man Lazarus thing and the idea that they need to see miracles to learn about what God is. No, no, it's all there. The, The testimony is given in Moses and the prophets. And they need to listen to Moses and the prophets. Luke 18 has this caricature of the Pharisee who's praying by himself, telling God how glad he is he's not like other men, how well he does it, fasting and tithing. And then there's a tax collector who just beats his breast, can't even look up, says, be merciful to God, me, God, a sinner. And Jesus says that the the tax collector goes away justified, not the Pharisee. A very sharp indictment at the time. Parable of the two sons in Matthew 21. Same kind of idea. The religious authorities who said they would do what God said, but didn't actually do it, will not enter the kingdom, but the prostitutes and those who did not do what God said, but repented and then did it, would. Matthew 21, also in Mark and Luke. Jesus takes Isaiah's song of the vineyard in Isaiah 5 and updates it. And he uses it to expose what Israel did first to the prophets, and then what the religious authorities are doing to him in killing the son, and how God's going to respond going to take away that uh, vineyard and give it to other tenants who will provide him the fruit in the good time. And uh, in John 9, we have images being played with of blindness and sight with the Pharisees. that They think they see, but they're blind. This blind man now sees. So again, we've seen the scriptural explanation refutation. We've seen that he uses questions. He will use embarrassing examples. He will use other kinds of examples and, and parables. And of course, there's also just straight up prophetic denunciation, especially the Pharisees and scribes. In Matthew 5, 17-48, that whole section we think of, you've heard it said, but I say unto you, all of that is demonstrating how they need to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes. And therefore it's a chastisement of the Pharisees and scribes. 
Uh, Matthew chapter 23 is one long litany of woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And he points out all these things that the scribes and Pharisees do that are hypocritical. Uh, They say one thing but do another. They uh, have all kinds of internal contradictions. They manifest pride and arrogance. They provide hindrance to others. They focus on details of the neck of the weightier principles. And in Luke 11, the same thing is said of lawyers as well. And so there's straight-up prophetic denunciation where he's just right out with it and very sharp with his uh, chastisement. And it's very important to note that those are the people he chastises. Anytime you're looking at at Jesus rebuking people, uh, speaking to people sharply, it's to the religious authorities, it's to the people who know better. It's so tragic that so many people read that and then go and chastise sinners and comfort the religious people, when in fact uh, Jesus would come and uh, preach hope and comfort to those who are lost and since they can come out of it and really rebuke and dig into the religious people who should know better. But there's also Sinax. Jesus didn't just denounce by word. He also did things to exemplify God's ways or condemnation. In fact, the whole cleansing of the temple should be understood in that way. He comes in and he says, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers in Matthew uh, 21, 13. That's a quotation of Jeremiah 7. A den of robbers, a place where the robbers think they're safe and, and hide out. And that was the chastisement Jeremiah gives. You treat the, the the temple like it's a den of robbers. You can go out and do all the idolatry you want, and when you think the consequences are coming to you, you're just going to come hide here in the temple and think Yahweh's going to save you. Well, as they all knew in the days of Jeremiah, the temple was destroyed. It, it was no good den, and so that's what they're doing again. And uh, the Sadducees and everybody else understood perfectly well what Jesus meant by that, and that is when they decided they are going to kill him. Another sign act actually can be seen about the, in, in Matthew 22, 15 through 22, when they ask him about um, whether or not uh, the people should pay taxes. Caesar. He says, well, well, let me see the coin. And so he looks at the coin. Who's, whose likeness inscription is this? So he's, he's also asking questions. And they say, well, it's, that's Caesar. Well, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. In Matthew 20, 12, 30 through 42, and 16, 1 through 4, Jesus' death and resurrection itself are sign acts, uh, the sign of Jonah, to a generation seeking signs. He will die and be in the belly of the earth, and then will rise again. And so, as we can see, Jesus doesn't just give one type of this type of, in, of, of instruction or explanation or challenge at a time. Uh, a lot of times he will ask questions and give a sign and give a parable, or he will use logical reasoning and scriptural explanation. A lot of these are being used together as he uh, goes through this work. And we get an indication from these how Jesus went about confronting his opponents. It's very important because we're not Jesus. Jesus has some uh, excellent advantages over us that he could discern the hearts, discern thoughts, and that his ass- he would ascertain the situation in a perfect way. But we are called upon to stand up for the gospel and confront those who are opposed to it. In Jude 1 and verse 3, we're to contend for the faith delivered once for all to the saints. And in 2 Timothy chapter 2, uh, Paul gives Timothy very important uh, explanations about the type of ways he's supposed to go about in dealing with situations akin to what we've been mentioning. Can't turn there today. Second Timothy chapter two, beginning in verse twenty-four. 
And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to everyone, be able to teach patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. In 1 Peter chapter 3, 14 and 15, in Colossians 4, 6, we're also supposed to uh, have our speech seasoned with salt, with grace to answer each one, and that we're to make a defense for the hope that is in us, but with gentleness and respect. So all that you see here, yes, we're supposed to uh, correct opponents, but with gentleness and hoping that God will grant repentance. And so in all these things, Jesus is our master guide and example in Hebrews 1, 3 and 1 John 2, 6. And so we can learn a lot about how we can correct those in opposition based on how Jesus corrected those who are in opposition. And first, we notice that he did actually uh, correct and challenge those who were in opposition. He did not let his opponents get the better of him. He did not leave their challenges without response. Now, there'll be times like in his trial where he won't respond to some accusations, and everybody will marvel at that. But when it comes to when he's teaching the people, the people around, and people might think, well, he doesn't have an answer to that, he would never let that stand. He responded, in fact, with a firmness and a willingness to chastise that would make us uncomfortable. If we're honest with ourselves, a lot of times, like what he says in Matthew 23 and things, uh, we're uncomfortable with that. If we're not uncomfortable with that, maybe that should show us we should be. Because it seems very much at odds to uh, patiently enduring evil, correct opponents with gentleness, and see how Jesus handled that in Matthew 23. There's certainly a tension there. We need to be careful, because it's very easy to become judgmental without warrant. There's a lot of passages, James 4.12, and Romans 14, 12-14, etc., who warn us about uh, our judgments and, and, and how we handle our judgments. But we can't buy into relativism and ecumenism. The idea that, well, my truth is true for you, your truth is true for you, and the idea that uh, as long as we agree on certain things, everything else doesn't matter. Error does exist, and we are to confront the opponents of the gospel, and we are to stand firm for its truth, but in a way that reflects and manifests the spirit of Jesus in a, in, with gentleness and, 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 and with respect and with a loving countenance. Another important thing that we see for how Jesus handles things uh, is that Jesus would not necessarily allow the surface issue to just go on as the main issue of conversation, that he, in fact, went to the, the issue behind the issue. It's very easy for people to want to think that to refute error, you just open up a Bible, point to a passage, say, well, the Bible clearly teaches this, and that's it. Everybody can agree. Now, there are times where there are people who might be genuinely ignorant of Scripture, and there might be a matter of, of simple confusion or matters of quote-unquote objective fact. There are things where somebody says, Jesus lived in the third century. No, Jesus lived in the first century. We can point out passages that show that that is a, a, a wrong statement. Uh, so there are times where that kind of refutation might work. But that's not most of the situation. And notice how very rarely Jesus will end up making scriptural or explanation refutation the centerpiece of his statements against opponents. It happens sometimes, but again, not as often as we might think. Because Jesus understood that the issue catalyzing confrontation was never really the issue. Uh, whatever catalyzed the conflict uh, was secondary, was just kind of a thing that really was pointing to something else. Uh, for instance, Sadducees come up with this ridiculous circumstance with the resurrection. Uh, 
their ridiculous circumstance is not really the issue. That's easily brushed away, and he does so. He's getting to the heart of the matter, which is their denial of the resurrection, and has to deal with that. You can't get anywhere with the Sadducees with all their examples until you deal with their denial of the resurrection. Uh, with the Pharisees and traditions, he goes to not that one tradition about washing hands. He goes to the whole body of tradition. He deals with the issue behind the issue. It'd be very easy for him to just demonstrate uh, his viewpoint and the superiority of his exegesis on the matter uh, the, of the surface. But the underlying disagreement remains unaddressed. And so Jesus tries to really deal with that attitude, that tendency, that assumption that led to the point of disagreement. Uh, and to point out that they're not just wrong in this one idea, they're wrong in even how they've approached the idea. To try to get them to change, to understand the way things really are. And that's true to this day. It's very easy to participate in a scripture barrage where you can argue with somebody from a different position and the service issue, you're just uh, lobbing scripture verses back and forth. And what's really going on is that there's underlying assumptions about how those scriptures work together that are very different. As long as those underlying assumptions are never addressed, there can never actually be agreement. We need to get to the issue behind the issue and to start trying to address not just the surface issue, but quickly go through the surface issue to mind to the real issue and point out the real issue underneath. We can think about this in terms of almost any kind of uh, disagreement, especially within Christendom. But Jesus also would meet opponents on their ground, whenever possible, whenever it could be salvaged, to work under uh, their operating assumptions. Like we saw the Sadducees, he didn't quote from Daniel or Hosea, which would be legitimate, since those are prophets, but the Sadducees didn't recognize them as such. But the Sadducees had to recognize Exodus. And so by pointing out an Exodus, it says, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, he really uh, forces them to deal with it in a way that's a little different than if he tried to have them meet him on his ground. And so if we can show another person their error even within their existing worldview, which again is not always possible, a lot of times it's inherent to their worldview, and therefore we have to, you know, just indict the whole worldview. But if we can actually get into, even with your operating assumptions, you are wrong, it can go a long way to really show people uh, the difficulty at hand and why they should uh, change the way they believe. It's also important to notice that Jesus is proving willing and able to understand where his opponents were coming from in order to effectively challenge and rebuke them. A lot of times the problem in arguments is that people aren't listening. And so you're not listening to somebody, you're not really seeing what the point of disagreement is, so you're just kind of spouting off whatever you want to say. And whatever you want to say might be true enough, but as your, the other person's not feeling like you're understanding where they're coming from. N they're not really going to give you a lot of credence anyway, and it's you're no longer taking the opportunity to really helping them to see what's the difficulty so that they can change their ways. We have to understand where they're coming from. Say, ah, this is how you're getting there. See, here are the problems, and this is what would need correction to be in alignment with the truth. What's also interesting is that Jesus didn't do all the work for them. He wanted them to reason for themselves. And so he would often explain himself would also ask questions. And in this way, his opponents would have to reason through to the own end. So asking the lawyer about how he read the law, and uh, then giving the story, and then asking him the question, who proved to be the uh, neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Or simply by asking questions about how they were going things, they would be forced to come to the conclusion, even if they didn't want to come to that conclusion. And so he would often have his opponents bring uh, their own refutation upon them. And also, questions are great because it's very difficult to prove a given meaning and a presumed answer to a question in a court of law. 
And so if he just answers with a question, uh, he hasn't really given an answer. And some people have very effectively used that, that you can ask almost any ridiculous question you want. And if nothing else, you've at least uh, put the sperm of that idea in the question, in the person's head. And so it's a very effective way of trying to get people to, to reason through things and to work through things is to use questions. And a lot of times he would make his opponents look foolish because of those questions and they would have no basis to accuse him. And so it's a lot of times it's a lot easier to try to explain it seems simpler, but if we stop for a second and try to find ways to ask our opponents questions and to force the, to, to, to have the questions have an answer. Now, you can't just ask one question without thinking about the follow-up question. You've got to kind of always, like a good chess player, be, you know, be working four or five moves ahead. Uh, but when you can do that effectively, it really uh, forces people to at least recognize that they've... Uh, they're not going to win that argument, and but ideally for them to recognize the error of their ways, so as to change. And, well, Jesus understands human nature better than we do, and humans are analogical creatures. We seek meaning and we understand new things in terms of things we already understand. And so Jesus would use parables or illustrations for a reason when he made his points, even when he's confronting opponents, especially when he's confronting opponents, because he's forcing them to see in their the situation themselves and, and to look at it from a different way and to realize how how, how they have gone astray. They're very memorable. They make his points well. And to this day, people will learn better from examples and illustrations. Unfortunately, a lot of times people just pick at the illustration or pick at the example. So we need to be careful about that. But we do well to use illustration effectively and parable effectively when we're trying to teach others in opposition. And it's also good and important, as we see with Jesus, to ascertain the level of opposition. It's very easy to assume anybody who's opposed to us is a you know sworn blood enemy. And that caricature is not helpful. It's not productive. Those who are in sharp opposition, like the Pharisees and scribes, who we would see as almost quote-unquote hopeless, receive sharp denunciation because that's about all that you could do. Uh, but many who had false ideas but were not entirely opposed, like Simon the Pharisee, uh, was corrected, but it wasn't as defiant, wasn't as harsh uh, with the way that Jesus approached him. And we need to realize opposition will come in all kinds of forms and at different levels, and we need to adjust our response accordingly uh, sometimes it, we don't we don't need to bring out the full assault on people we just need to ask a couple probing questions and they can kind of see well, what they need to do now, some people we might need to be sharper and it's also important to note that jesus didn't say well you know pharisees are hopeless i'm not going to address them he chastised them in love it's very hard to do that and do it well but there might be times where people's heart are so hardened that yet you still have to say something because uh, you love their soul and you don't want to see them condemned. As Jesus did not want the Pharisees to be condemned, he wanted to seek to save the loss of Israel, which included the Pharisees. But the Pharisees would have to first see that they were lost. And that proved to be the problem. And in all things, we've even spoken in terms here that would be offensive to many people. The idea, well, how correct error? How how can you presume uh, such things? Well, if if we believe that Jesus is a, the way, the truth, and the life, and that Jesus has uh, can can be explainable, and that there are definitely things we can see that are in opposition to Jesus, there's antichrist like in First John. Then yes, we we have to be able to do that and to say that. But the reason that that is so offensive to people is that so many times, especially religious arguments, people are arguing to be right. And it's one thing to be proven right, and it's another thing entirely to win a person. We can steamroll over anybody to prove that we're right. But that's not the way forward if we are trying to teach the, the laws, the gospel of Jesus. 
Jesus never pursues a conversation to be proven right. He says what he does, even to the Pharisees, to teach, instruct, encourage all Israel to be reconciled to their God. And we need to maintain the same attitude. And in all these things, we need to remember who the true opponent is. The person that we're speaking with who is speaking against us is not our true opponent. Ephesians 6.12, it's the forces of darkness that have deceived many. Uh, even here in 2 Timothy that we've read earlier, God may perhaps grant them repentance, lean not truth, and they may escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. That Paul even sees in the opponents, they're ensnared by the devil. They're working on behalf of the devil and the spiritual forces of darkness. We speak to challenge the lie and the delusion because God wants the person we're talking to to be saved. 1 Timothy 2.4, 2 Peter 3.8.9 We're confronting them because of their opposition, but so that they may repent and be saved. Now, even if we do this very well, there's going to be consequences. Standing firm in oppos- against opposition has consequences. We see the conspiracies were hatched against Jesus and that they killed him. And that Christians have been persecuted and suffered for generations for standing for the gospel's truth. And even when we have the best situation where we're working with somebody who is trying, who, who, who's in opposition but is willing to be reasoned with, there are going to be times where there's discomfort and tension in, in those discussions and those, in, in those arguments. But it's only through that kind of suffering that true growth or conversion can take place. Many have properly compared it to fishing. Uh, when a fish gets hooked, the fish doesn't just flop over and just let you reel them in. No, that's when the fight begins. And so a lot of times that kind of visceral uh, conflict that can come from disagreement is in fact an indication that you're kind of reeling them in, that there's, there's actually kind of working through things. That's how growth happens. And so God is faithful. We do well to stand firm regardless of the consequences, however mild or difficult they may be. So that we've seen that Jesus, by his very identity, as son of God and son of man, was going to face opposition. And there are a lot of forces that conspired against him. But we can see in Luke 13, 17, Mark 12, 34, that his opponents were put to shame by his answers, and they reached the point of no longer even asking him questions. And then they just used underhanded ways to, uh, uh, to have him killed, because if you can't uh, beat him, you don't want to join him, you kill him. But in the end, they're the ones who are judged, because he is risen. Jerusalem, everything they held dear, the status quo or their same on the people, was gone. And so opposition is going to be raised against the gospel. But we need to stand and confront those who speak in opposition, to challenge them, but to do so as Jesus did and to the same ends as Jesus did. And so may we speak God's truth in Christ and love to correct those in opposition, to stand firm for the gospel, and recognizing that it's a very important, because the gospel will endure forever. And all discomfort that comes from uh, standing firm for the gospel uh, is only fleeting. We're again so glad that you've joined us. If you'd like to discuss these matters more, if you'd like to uh, consider other discussions we've had about Jesus' teaching or other things, uh, maybe you'd like to learn more about the Venture to Christ. Maybe you'd like to come visit us. If there's any way you can be of service, please visit us at our website, VentureToChrist.org. We're also on social media. If I can be of service, uh, you can contact me through my website, DeVerboVitae.com. That's www.D-E-V-E-R-B-O-V-I-T-A-E.com. We again thank you. Have a great day.